This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by BitPay. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening to Untold Stories, where twice a week we dive deep with crypto's most influential leaders to find out how this movement truly came to be. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in their network. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io. With that, today's amazing guest is Carissa McFarlane, who is the founder and CEO of Patientory Incorporated. So cool, a blockchain-powered application designed to secure and manage your health data information in real time. Now, you ready for this? You know what I learned today? All that medical data that everyone was saying, we need to de- decentralize your medical data, your medical data this, your medical data that. We don't actually own this data. You don't own any of your medical data. It's so crazy. You call your doctor, you say, give me a copy of my, you don't own that. Anyways, you'll find out more on the show. I'm Charlie Shrem. Today, I'm with Carissa McFarland. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Charlie. Did I pronounce your name right? Yes, you did. did I- job on the first try. Everyone is always asking me, why do you ask why, how to pronounce my name? And uh, English isn't my first language. So I'm like, I struggle with a lot of people's names and the, you know, regular English names or whatever. Uh, so I'm happy that I'm figuring it out. Really? What's your first language? Uh, so I grew up with my parents yelling at me in Hebrew and my grandparents yelling at me in Arabic. And then I grew into a, you know, and I grew up here, so I still I learned Brooklyn English. So my English is literally like, I don't know how to say like a light bulb. Like I say, like you know, uh, turn. I'll say like shut, the, uh, turn off the light or close the light. I'll say instead of turn off the light. Or, it doesn't matter. Um, but thanks for joining me today. Sure. And you know, y- you you know a, a lot about health, and and I really want to get into this because uh, I don't know if you saw my tweet like ten minutes ago, but. And I wrote in my tweet, I said, so many blockchain health companies have tried to do what you're trying to do. Uh, so many companies have promised to be able to to take um, our, you know, our data and information. If you ask someone, like, you take your data and your information and your privacy and you, you say, what data matters the most to you? What are yeah. they going to say? What's their response? They're probably saying their financial data, no? Yeah, their financial. And I was going to say also their health data. So with their with their health data, um, we don't know where it is. We don't know who has it or, or who has access to it. I mean, how did you get into this, and 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 what are you what are you doing to change that? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a a um, I would say I call it my my lifelongs work, right? Um, so I've been in healthcare since you know forever. So I grew up in the Bronx, um, started out doing microbiology research at Brooklyn. Albert Einstein. <laughs> so we'll get into which borough is better after. Um, oh, can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. Before you get into everything and my listeners are going to be like, stop interrupting everyone all the time. Bugs Bunny was actually the, I heard it yesterday. Yesterday was Bugs Bunny's anniversary, uh, his birthday. The accent of Bugs Bunny was created to be 50% Brooklyn 50% Bronx as to not offend the, the voice of Bugs Bunny said that he catered. Really? Yeah. Really? How cool is that? After that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> okay. So tell, tell us how the whole journey got started into health, because it's not something you just stumble into. You have to have a passion for oh, it, right? No, you don't. And you know, people joke that people in healthcare, especially health IT are like crazy because they, they spend years and years, you know, 
trying to prove out something. But after it's proven, you know, it definitely has um, great, you know, effects and returns on society. But eventually, you know, I started out doing microbiome research, um, which didn't like the idea of being stuck in a lab. Um, Who does? day to day some people uh, do some doctors want to be in labs and not see patients yeah yeah some some people want to be in a lab and and not interact um as much with people but kind of went in into you know the the other journey so did 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 just for the usda went into healthcare administration um which eventually got me into healthcare consultant um so i did a lot of the um at least mid-tier um, clinic e- electronic medical records implementation. Um, so that was an initiative that came out of the Obama administration um, that required um, hospitals, clinics to start to digitize data. So if you remember oh, back in the day, you'd go to your, your hospital and, and you, they had your files in a manila folder that was probably color coded. Um, but with the digitization of, of health information, you know, that created these large EMR companies which essentially became siloed wall gardens for, for people's health information. Okay. Um, which creates this challenge today um, in what we call and relate to healthcare interoperability and being able to securely share information. Um, and it's sad to date that, you know, me, you, like, we don't own our health information. You might log into a patient portal, but you can't actually take what that information and, and go anywhere with it, right? What do you mean you don't own it? So it is property of the, the healthcare. So you, you sign a waiver, you sign a HIPAA consent form, um, which becomes property of, of the hospital, um, and eventually the like, EMR systems, the EMR companies that are contracted by the hospital to, to store that information. So you're telling me that if I write this, I take this notepad and I write Charlie Shrem, blood type AB negative or whatever my blood type, I don't know. And that's medical data right now. I can fold it up. You know, it's my medical data. It's private. I don't want anyone to know my, my blood type. I just announced it on my podcast. But um, is that the only medical data I own? Because all the, you know, my doctor's office, the hospital, every time you step in there, you sign that waiver. So really, the conversation needs to be changed. The conversation up until now, and, and this is a breakthrough here, the conversation, and, and if you ask any, any American or any global citizen, but for the sake of this conversation, we'll say an American, they think they own their data. And in fact, blockchain health companies, uh, I've invested in a few, have said like, yeah, we're taking control of your health data again. We're giving you control of it. But it's not my data. I don't own that data. So so what am I decentralizing? <laughs> Air. No, I'm yeah, no, no. So let's take a step back here um, and don't get into, into what you're doing yet. I want to get people excited. Um, I want to ask you about the USDA and digitizing data. I know there were, there were separate things, but with digitizing data, when, like around what time period did that start happening? And was there pushback on that? Was there pushback for privacy reasons, for any type of reasons of people saying, we don't want to put, you know, our health data on the internet? Yeah, no, I mean, EMRs, you know, it, it's been around, I would say, you know, especially in the early 2000s, you know, going into the late 90s. Um, it really didn't start to take precedence until that became one of the, you know, the main policies out of, you know, HHS, um, our federal health government, um, where if a hospital didn't, 
you know, contract with the EMR, they would get basically penalized um, with a fine, right? So that was the incentivization mechanism to actually have this heavy lift um, to start to digitize that information. And um, once that was digitized, why wasn't a like centralized, I hate to say it, but in this situation, maybe a centralized government database would have been a better uh, way to do this um, to protect ourselves because uh, I almost like wonder like who do we trust more as custodians of, of our health data? Is it the government or do we trust private companies? And you can ask the same question with financial data too. Who do you trust more? You could take it a step further and say like, who do you trust to issue currencies like Facebook Libra or governments themselves? I mean, it's a very higher end question, but I think the answer with health is different than the answer with financial data. Do you, you talk to people? Um, what are their thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the goal there was also to, you know, we, we live in a capitalist country to to create, um, you know, that that open um, exchange and economy. So essentially, you had companies form um, out of that because they were actually getting funded by the government to actually go and sell EMR systems to these hospitals. Um, so it kind of took that strain off of the government um, to have these competing organizations, which eventually, you know, we probably started out with almost over a thousand electronic medical record companies. And today we have about probably only four major companies um, that really result for about 80% of, of the market. And so how did this lead into your next, uh, your next, like, what did you do next essentially after that? So I actually went after that, that, that consultant, I actually went to work for a telemedicine company out of New York City, out of Soho. So, you know, the next push, next trend in healthcare was, oh, yeah, we're going to be all, you know, virtually talking to our doctors and having virtual doctor um, office visits, um, which telemedicine, you know, back in 2010, 2012, you know, really didn't take off because of just the, the barrier issues, you know, into interoperability. Then we have the emergence of HIPAA, um, which is a regulation and, and privacy law. When did HIPAA law. launch? When did it become a thing? The act? HIPAA has always been a thing. Like it was created to um, basically protect um, the privacy and security of, of individuals' health information. It was actually passed in 1996. So this was way before Obama. This is like during yeah. Clinton. Yeah. I think HIPAA is one of the most important pieces of legislation in in in, in our country right now. Uh, how many times do people reference HIPAA on a, on a, on a monthly or yearly? You, you visit your doctor a few times a year. How many times does HIPAA come up a conversation, right? How many times do you reference other acts or other, you know, government legislation on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis? So it's, it's so important uh, to, to protect our medical data. Um, and so you moved on to telemedicine. Was there a risk of now, like how, uh, if someone's talking to you, if, you know, if you're a doctor, I'm talking to you right now, we're, we're on the, you know, um, is, was there a, a risk when it comes to, to how the encryption or how the data or where it would be stored or um, how to verify patients? Like, and telemedicine never really, like it took off, but it never really took off, took off until the COVID, until exactly. coronavirus, really. Yeah. Which is fortunate because what this do you think about that? 
been around for over, I mean, technology and healthcare, like it's there. Looking at telemedicine, it's been around for over a decade. And, you know, with CVS, they saw like a 300% increase in their telemedicine platform. But it wasn't until this pandemic happened until they started to really actively um, push for that. And that happened because um, the U.S. lapsed laws, um, you know, around around um, data access and, and, you know, security for, for that to happen. Yeah. How is it different, though, than other countries? I feel like we have it better. You think so? Have it better in terms of, of health, telemedicine or health So I was referencing uh, how the data, like in terms of trust, how the data is stored and and, uh, and controlled. But when it comes to telemedicine and healthcare in general, y- you actually tell me that I'm wrong because you know better than I do. Um, I only look at Canada, UK, um, and then the countries where I have friends that live. Um, most people I know don't have to pay for their own health care. It's like there's like a private health care and then there's like a supplementary system. So a lot of people I know have this like supplementary system. And this is actually a great segue. I wrote it down to segue into this. And so thank you for that opportunity. The, not the problem, but the, the question that I have for you is that capitalism and the way our economy is built, um, a unified social health care system couldn't not that it couldn't work, but I I need to understand how doctors and healthcare professionals and pharmaceutical companies will stay competitive and also want to be work as hard and we to maintain that talent because the way our healthcare system, uh, the way that some of these other countries their healthcare systems are built, like the UK and Canada, it disincentivizes doctors yeah. from even staying in those countries. So at the same time, like we need a, I think if someone says like Charlie's America broken, I'm going to say no, but there's, there's, there's a lot of things, but healthcare is something that we could tackle now. And healthcare is something that I feel like can provide a lot of, um, um, I, I actually didn't let you like answer the question. So what do you think about everything I just said first? I think you had a lot of questions in there. I did. I did. I do that a lot. <laughs> I'm going to try to sum it up or just start with the first half of the question. Healthcare in America. That's like, just healthcare. what are your thoughts on healthcare in America? Yeah, healthcare in America. Um, basically, and you know how it relates to our peer countries, um, developed countries who have healthcare as a, a social good, you know, um, their citizens don't necessarily pay unless okay. they want like private healthcare, right? Um, but healthcare in America is definitely it creates, it's a market, right? It's a market um, ecosystem. So um, I would say, you know, liken it to, you know, the emergence of the digitization of, of data, we're really not going to see an incentive or, or really quick push to, for organizations and EMR companies to want to share that data because there is no incentives for them to do that, Right. And, and that's the biggest trouble that we have right now in, in health IT with interoperability and why this has been, you know, one of the biggest, the main challenges in healthcare for the past 15 or so years. Um, our company, we actually just um, released a peer reviewed journal um, through, you know, we're part of the Oregon Enterprise Blockchain Venture Studio um, that was launched last summer. I love um, so Atlanta. this article... 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's actually out of Portland. Um, oh, I still love Atlanta. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not, not Portland very much. I'm just here. <laughs> not Portland. Um, but you know that was incentivizing change, right? Um, using blockchain technology to access um, data for social and economic determinants of health, and and what we basically hypothesize and premise is that you know we're really not going to see a push for you know, data ownership or even access um, from the consumer, the, the patient, um, until stakeholders such as insurance companies, um, hospitals are incentivized to actually want to be able to share that information. And that's where blockchain comes in in providing that incentivization layer um, mechanism. Um, so essentially, it becomes a health information exchange market. Um, where hospitals can actually see, you know, value in doing that um, and being reimbursed for that. So I think, you know, health healthcare in the U.S. is complex. I think we have one of the most complex healthcare systems out there because of the lack of, you know, government control over that. Whereas they provide more of the the framework and the policies um, for our healthcare um, to operate. Um, but, you know, it can also be a lucrative space. So until, you know, everyone, you know, really meets in the middle, um, we can start to see, you know, those benefits really the, play out to the patients. Okay, come on. This is so cool. This is the new BitPay card that I have in my hand. And I'm so excited to be finally having the new one that just came out. Now, guys, I've been using the BitPay card since 2016. Yeah, you heard that right. Way before I started Untold Stories way before BitPay became a sponsor of mine. I've been using this card and it literally became a way for me to have a bank account uh, for many, many years as, as a lot of people in crypto need banking, need better banking. The BitPay card is chock full of the coolest features. It's got contactless pay, uh, better rates and limits, no fees to convert from Bitcoin right onto the card, added in chip security. I mean, it's sexy. It looks good, unlike other cards. It's so easy to get. Just download the BitPay app on your phone, click the card icon, and you can do it right there. If you use the promo code CHARLIEJUNE20, your card is free. Remember, CHARLIEJUNE20. It's in the show notes. You can get a free card. So literally, just from listening to my show today, and make sure you actually listen, you can get a free card just by entering that code. So download the BitPay app, get the coolest card on the market, the best card on the market. I've been using it for over four years now. I know there are so many cards out there, but the BitPay brand is the oldest and longest running Bitcoin company in the world. I mean, that's who issues this card. This is the card you want to have. Remember, Charlie, June 20, download the BitPay app on iOS or Android to sign up for the new card. You're going to freaking love it. Do, do, do states, so you look at like the Florida Department of Health and the Georgia Department of Health. Are states healthcare uh, institutions strong enough to almost say that for the federal government to say, okay, we'll do state run healthcare. So instead of doing like federal healthcare system, it's run and managed by the states and have marketplace. You know, I've heard this idea floated around and then obviously your insurance would work around the country because mm -hmm. the idea was that, yeah, um, it works in a lot in, in most of the world. It works, you know, social healthcare, uh, standardized healthcare, uh, single payer healthcare system. Uh, it, it works, but it works in places where the countries are a lot smaller. And so you have less people and you have the ability to manage that. 
We yeah. live in a very big country, uh, a lot of people, and that's always been one of the issues uh, with these federal systems is that we're all different here. So how do you have one size fits all legislation? Yeah, and I think, you know, we already do that with with the states, right? Um, and, and this is one of the issues with the CDC, like they have a hard time getting access to data because they can't just go to go to Florida and say, you know, we need all of the all of the data from individuals that, you know, had oh, COVID. Right? Really? Yeah, no, that doesn't exist. Um mm. Which is, you know, you're thinking that it's CDC, they're a federal entity, you know, they can get information from anywhere. And, and that's also one of the issues with um, health information exchanges, HIEs, which, you know, was started in the, the early, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, which basically confined, confined data exchange to states, but they can actually exchange data, you know, cross, cross states. Um, hmm. So, I mean, you know, this is the challenges that, that already exist. And I think because, again, having that concentration of power, you know, within states is really hard from a national country um, where do you, to come together. You work in an industry where um, it's, a ver- it's very much about the, the individual, the person, but also the collective has it affected your political like leanings? Because at the end of the day, you know, you are in, in crypto and blockchain that has its roots in libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism. But with healthcare, where I personally fall on the spectrum is less that leaning and more, I hate to say it, more of like, I do believe there should be institutions here in, in our states or in our cities that and, you know, potentially having like a, a statewide or whatever. Uh, single payer healthcare system, and I, I surprise myself when I admit that. But has mm-hmm. have you found yourself like thinking about your political and social views on that? I mean, yes um, and no. It's it's like you know when you're in healthcare, it's like yeah. you have to do the moral good for the benefit of everyone, right? Um, and slowly, you kind of see the push to our system for a more single payer, you know. Even even with the acquisitions that are happening now, so we're starting to see less and less, you know, clinics, um, individual clinics that are being bought up by major health systems, um, insurance carriers that are buying up smaller smaller carriers. So I, I think you know that that need is there, um, absolutely. Um, Has the national the- conversation changed? around single payer healthcare. Like I remember, you know, like if we go back to January and I asked you and there's no COVID, do you think in the next six months, President Trump would try to rescind more of like, you know, Affordable Care Act? You, what would you tell me? Yes. Would you tell me? Yes. Okay, exactly. Now though, it's not part of the conversation anymore. So has the national feeling changed? It's not as much. Why? Because of COVID, you know, we're seeing the data coming out of, um, especially underserved communities. That, yeah, that's the problem. You know, they're not getting any access or any treatment. You know, when COVID first hit, you know, most of that went into, you know, communities that were well-funded or, or had that infrastructure in place. While, you know, the other part of the country, you know, it was, it was hard to get anything. So we're seeing a lot more of those stories um, come up as we look at the inequalities and the inequities that exist in the healthcare space. 
Inequalities and inequities exist, unfortunately, in so many different institutions in our country. And I feel like with the the uh, protests and, and the movements in the past uh, and the BLM movement and, and all the different you know ideas in the past few months, I feel like it's not why why hasn't it or maybe I'm wrong focused on other areas of inequality that could potentially change the socioeconomic uh, status of people like change the healthcare system, make it an, an equal system. People can then sleep at night knowing that they have health care and therefore they'll be a lot more secure in going out and finding work or caring for their family. You would think, right? <laughs> yeah, no, what, and it seems like a simple, a, a simple, I would say, answer to a, a hard problem. I know. And, and so we look at, you know, what, what historians do, um, because unfortunately, I not unfortunately, but I, I study a lot of history. But um, what historians like to do is they like to compare like old events with with new events. And so what they will say, hopefully in 20 years from now, that out of this coronavirus pandemic that we've been through, we've learned a lot of things. And I hope that they say we've learned. And mm -hmm. I hope that one of the things that has changed because of this is, you know, it's not a big ask. But I hope one of the things that changes is equality when it comes to healthcare, because uh, I do believe that we that that we need that. It's very expensive. It's yeah. healthcare is expensive in this. Country. People don't realize it's like a couple, a normal middle, you know, like a a middle class couple, two people. Doesn't matter like socioeconomic status. But if you're reasonably health, healthy and m lower middle age, it's costing you over a thousand dollars for healthcare a month. Yeah, and you could rent a Maserati. You could lease a Maserati for that price. Exactly. Right. People don't so realize that. Can I just? You know, can you repeat that again? What I just? It's, it's crazy. You said rent a Maserati. I mean, that's the healthcare in this country, right? What would you rather have, healthcare or a Maserati? I don't know. I would almost rather the Maserati, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you think that if you needed to go to the doctor, you might as well. You probably it's probably cheaper paying out of pocket, right? Yeah. You look at the cost benefit. Of it. Are you involved in the in the crypto community in in ATL? Um, we have actually um, our blockchain community is the Atlanta blockchain meetup is the largest community that we have. I actually got them, you know, to to meet in our offices. That's as far as. Oh, as cool. And I met my involvement there. I met that host of that meetup because he's a re we ate bison steak in Atlanta together back in February, right before coronavirus. Yeah. yeah so this this show is sponsored by I have two sponsors, BitPay and Coin Gaming, and BitPay mm -hmm. is actually based. And I know all the you all the listeners are getting ready to like fast forward the commercial. Oh, like this show is sponsored. No, it's not the commercial yet. But yeah, we're actually BitPay was actually out of our offices as well um atlanta tech village until yeah you know, moved out i so. love avalon where they are now up in alpharetta it's cool up there yeah avalon is nice yeah it's cool up there i think georgia has always had a huge tech community um and a huge crypto community um a lot of the companies the early early companies uh jeff garzik comes from georgia come you know yeah. was based out of atlanta too so you have a lot of early crypto ogs um still are and were based around Georgia and Atlanta and everything like that. Okay. And Atlanta so, doesn't get any love from the crypto community as much as like New York or 
Well, I actually, we were supposed to move to Georgia. Atlanta was our moving location four years ago. I love Atlanta and then I'm a big fan of the food especially. And then I I found out about this place where I live now here in Florida. I came here on vacation with my mother-in-law and it was her idea. Um, And I was like, I'd I'd love Atlanta, but I like like Sarasota more. Okay, so patient Tori, taking all the stuff that we've talked about and learned in the past 30 minutes, um, why did you start this company and how are you using it to change the way uh, healthcare technology is handled in, in our country? No, absolutely. No, I started the company because of my experiences, you know, going through and, and building that telemedicine company and just looking at it and saying like, our whole system is, is not right. Right. Um, and the technology is, isn't, wasn't there and the the infrastructure needed that we needed to have in healthcare just, just wasn't there. Um, so, and, you know, when we first launched the company, you know, we were looking at different technologies to be able to really start to integrate, you know, these electronic medical record systems. Um, we had a lot of API companies in the marketplace already, you know, that were trying to do the same thing, you know, in digital health. Came across blockchain. So this was like late 2015. No enterprise industry for, for blockchain no. yet. But I was like, you know, the research in me was like, okay, yeah, this, this, this is it. I mean, we have security, um, authentication. It, it makes sense. So um, went, went that path. Um, started to reach out to like early, you know, crypto blockchain people in the community, you know, met up with storage was also out here in Atlanta. Oh yeah. I forgot they're out there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he became an advisor to the company. Um, and essentially what we conceptual conceptualize was, you know, creating this decentralized and distributed health information exchange system that would be able to normalize um, but start to aggregate data from these different disparate medical record systems, right? So that we can actually start to, in healthcare, manage big data. So a lot of the companies today, you know, they're getting information from third-party clearinghouses. They're scrubbing claims data, um, which is not really the entire picture. And, you know, in healthcare, you know, the, the goal is to go back to put in the patient at the center of that care. Um, so having the patient own that information, but also start to have that patient, you know, have a place where all of that generated data on a day-to-day basis can be housed, um, in a system that would give physicians even more accuracy and insights and intelligence, um, to their patients, um, which makes it easier for them to diagnose, right. And telemedicine, like what we were seeing, you know, when we, had our doctors um, have the first consultation, you know, with a patient over the phone, it was like, okay, who are you? Like, you know, I don't know why you're having symptoms. And it's like, it would be so much easier if they had all that information there. So if they had all that information there, do you think how we get diagnosed and how we get prescribed medication, would that change? Would the incentives for doctors change? Absolutely. And I think, and you said incentives, like now our system is going from a fee-based, you know, reimbursement model. So CMS, you know, how they reimburse healthcare practitioners is is now focusing on more value-based. So uh, is your patient population getting healthier? 
right? Um, and on the basis of that, those metrics and those quality metrics, we're going to give you X amount of dollars. Um, and that's and that I see that push because you know in the past five years, you know more than forty percent of our our country has one or more chronic illnesses, and we're ranked pretty low on you know the the healthy country index. Why? Why are we ranked so low on the healthy country index? Because healthcare is 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 hard for for people to get access to healthcare. So if you look at countries where you know, healthcare is socialized, you know, their patient population is going to be healthier. But that's one of the, the unfortunate effects and um, side effects of, of our healthcare system. Do, do Europeans or Canadians, I'm um, just using them as an example, do they visit their doctors more? Do they have different types of relationships with their doctors versus like how we, how we have, you know, our, our relationship with our doctors here in the U.S.? Yeah, I would say it's definitely going to differ. It's going to, you know, vary by um, household, right? And, and how yeah. much income they have and how much access they have um, to healthcare. But essentially, the average, I would say, European or Canadian person, you know, has a healthier relationship um, with their, their providers or their physicians because that's, that's something they don't have to worry about paying a copay. Or cost incurred. True. You know, they, they have a sneeze. So they can make it in the US. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, I have a fever, but I don't I don't want to go to the emergency room because I'm gonna be billed $150 copay. So um the we talked about all the good things about single payer system. The the negatives that you hear are you know, is that the quality of healthcare goes down with that, although the access, you know, goes up, the quality yeah. goes down. But then a, lo- a response that I that I heard and that I, I kind of understand, but I, I don't like is that, in fact, it'll further push for inequality because you're going to have um, doctors and hospitals choose to only take patients that have that like supplementary insurance or it's just going to shift the narrative or change, you know, at the end of the day, do we have enough beds, doctors, nurses, hospitals for the amount of people to have those type of relationships with our doctors, hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. I guess that my fear is that it'll like push for further inequality because you'll have like someone who can't afford health insurance have the single payer health care system um, that gives provides for like, you know, doctor's visits, things like that. And then the supplementary gives you like, I don't know, what are some things that the supplementary uh, specialized doctors or, yeah. you know, faster, like cut the line type of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we already have a shortage of nurses and healthcare practitioners in the country, right? And I think that's where technology comes in. You know, that's where the utilization of telemedicine um, or even stratifying that can help to solve, you know, the issue of going to a single payer system and then having an influx of, of healthcare users um, to where we can start to like push type, these types of technologies um, to help manage that, that burden. What's the future? I mean, if we're sitting here talking a year from now, what type of like small step success would you like to see? Like we're a year from now, we're in a post-COVID world. Who knows what the world's going to look like, but we're in a post-COVID world. We have a treatment vaccine, whatever. Um, but now we can get back to like normalcy a little bit. You think any progress can now part of the national conversation, regardless in whose political office, do you think now something can change? 
Yeah, I mean, we actually had a big change in March. So um, HIMSS, which is the Global Health IT Conference, I mean, conference, but organization, um, membership base um, that's based here in the U.S. I sit on the interoperability chair. Um, they're one of the key, you know, pushers of the 21st Century Cures Act, um, which went into effect this past March. Um, what was that? So this basically, you know, is a precedence for, you know, allowing healthcare institutions to provide third-party intermediary access um, to vendors like Patientory or like an Apple or like a Google. Oh. So people, so individuals can start to gain access to their data. And this has been lobbied, you know, for years by these electronic medical record companies. I don't know if you saw um, something by one of the CEOs. They were like, you know, people don't need to have their health data because they don't understand it. So oh, come on. Have it? That, so I thought that was really disturbing. But um, so that happened in March. That's um, not true. That's yeah. not true. I'll tell you why that's not true. Because... We were joke. I was having dinner with my mother-in-law the other night and my wife, and we were joking around that she's a personal trainer, my mother-in-law, mm-hmm. and she had a client say, "Hey, can you read my MRI?" And my mother-in-law's like, "I'm not a. I can't read an MRI. You know, I'm a personal trainer." So there's like this like fear, right? Meanwhile, so her client had to fight the doctor for like the full copy of everything mm-hmm. for her own data, and then. It wasn't that big of a deal when she's meant read the MRI. She didn't mean look at the x-ray. She meant like read the doctor's notes and things like that, which is actually written out in plain English. And because of that, my mother-in-law was able to properly make sure she doesn't do certain workouts that could affect her client. Look at that. That's a perfect usage of why we need our medical data. It's the exact reason I could pull it up on my phone. Patientory. Exactly. Krista, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I cannot think of a better way to just end it off. Everyone hopefully will have a better understanding of why this is such an important conversation to have. Absolutely. Thanks again, Charlie. Thank you so much.